0: Romans chapter 13, for those of you that are not following us up to date, we finished an exposition of Romans a couple of weeks ago, and as I did with the book of Revelation, I entered into what I call a distillation phase, where we concentrate the teachings of Romans into a distilled form. And the form that that takes is an expanded paraphrase of Romans, and please don't mistake that for a translation. It is a paraphrase, and within the paraphrase, limited commentary. So look today for eight insights that I'll be sprinkling in the midst of this paraphrase, beginning with Romans thirteen 1. Eight insights, and then a particular application to our own situation. I'm speaking specifically to Tetelestai phalanx, or to Tetelestai Phalanx, we are merely a small unit in the army of God in the present era and in the body of Christ joined to the head, so we will be doing this now. Romans 13, my intention is to go all the way through 15.6 today, and it's a important section of Romans, so... Let's start with 13.1. Now, I'm going to start by an introductory commentary, and this is extremely important for clarification. And, in fact, this is a very brief commentary. We finished Romans chapter 12. In fact, all of these are out. will be eventually out in print. They are in imperfect form, editing-wise and otherwise. They're very rough, and they're, I intend to put a more of a completed form of this paraphrase with some brief commentary for your edification it may be close to 50 pages of printed material so and it will also appear on the website and we'll tighten it up we also may enter into some phases of doctrine romans doctrines and romans insights as a final chapter in our romans study as with revelation it's hard to part with this book and I say that only because of the spirit's direction he's our teacher, our master teacher, the Holy Spirit. Romans 13:1, then this is in keeping with the robust policy of non-retaliation and benevolence, which we established in Romans 2, Romans 12, rather 17 through 21. Romans 12:17 through 21. And this moves into a segue into Romans chapter. 13 where we have this every soul must be subjected to the governing civil authorities for no authority exists except by God and the powers that be have been established in office by God for this reason verse two: anyone who opposes the authority Paul speaking specifically of the authority of the Roman Empire is resisting what God has instituted. Moreover, those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. For the governing authorities are not a cause of fear to doers of benevolent actions, but to doers of harmful deeds. Therefore, the judgment he speaks of here is a judgment that is delivered through those authorities disobedience to this mandate resulted in a little crisis called AD 70. So that's the wrath. And then he goes on to say in verse three, do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do good and you will have its praise for government is God's servant to you for good. But if you do evil, then fear, for it is not for nothing that it carries the sword, for government is God's servant, an an avenger that brings wrath on the one who does evil. Therefore, it is necessary to submit, not only because of your fear of wrath, which is retaliation upon violent resistance, that retaliation coming in this case in Paul's case by the Roman empire, but also because of your conscience meaning so that you can live with yourself knowing that you're not resisting God's ordinance six because of this you pay taxes since people in the government are God's ministers who are serving God in what they do as proof of your subjection. Verse seven. Pay everyone what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are due, tariffs to whom tariffs are due, respect to whom respect is due, honor to whom honor is due. This takes it out of the realm of personal admiration or personal animus that you may have for political leaders, and it puts it right into the realm of an objectivity of understanding God's ordinance. Verse eight, and here we have a couple of insights will be involved with this passage. Leave no debt outstanding except for that of love for one another. For the one who loves the other, very important here, an insight came to me on this as recently as a couple days ago when I was editing this. Ton, T-O-N, the article, heteron, and that's a hard breathing, H-E-T-E-R-O-N. This is the ultimate challenge of love. Ton, heteron, the other, someone other than you, other than your clique, other than your clan, other than your family, other than your faction, other than your nationality, other than your race, other than your ethnicity, other than your political ideology, other than, the other, the other, the other. Ton Heteron says, for the one who loves the other has fulfilled the law or filled full the requirement of Torah. Filled it full. The law or the requirement of Torah is that you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart. And mind and soul and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now we're going to equate these two things. The neighbor and the other are equated. That's the insight. The neighbor and the other are equated. Meaning, ultimately, here's the insight your neighbor is all others, all of humanity. This is the point of the parable of the Good Samaritan. The other. And the good Samaritan is Jesus Christ by representation and over and against religious factiousness. The priest just walked on by the Pharisee just walked on by the Levite walked on by because of the other love is not love, complete love until it's completed in the love for the other. Why? Because God, the father makes his son to shine on the evil and the good and his rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. So how much more should we be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect, meaning perfect in love, perfect in a policy of love. That's the insight. So leave no debt outstanding except for that of love to one another for the one who loves the other has fulfilled or filled full the Torah for this, colon, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. He reiterates four of the commandments of the so-called Decalogue. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this word, entologo, in this word, entologo tuto, in this word. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the filling up. The word there is pleroma, a key word throughout Romans. Pleroma of the law. Arrow back, Romans 5 5. The Holy Spirit pours out this love in us. Romans 8 4. As we walk in the power of the Spirit the law is fulfilled in us by that same love. Insight one, therefore, at the point of Romans 13.10 at its completion. Insight one. Love for the other is very general. It covers all of humankind, especially those not in one's own clique or clan, family or faction. The other is connected with your neighbor in this passage the other is connected with your neighbor in such a way in Romans 13:8 through 10 that every other human being must be considered your neighbor who is my neighbor asked the one who tried to trick and trip up Jesus the parable Of the Good Samaritan says everybody. This is the point therefore that is driven home in Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. To drive this point home in the saints in Rome and to us today. Is to convince us that love is owed to those. Whom we may have previously harmed. And to those by whom we may have been previously armed involves forgiveness. Love is perfected in us or brought to its fullness and completion. When our love like God, our father's love is unqualified and unrestricted, unconditional taking in the other as our neighbor. This love must include love for our enemies because it is a graced imitation of the father and the father's love, a graced imitation, not just us attempting to imitate, but the Holy Spirit empowering a love that imitates the father's love who reconciled us to himself through the death of his son while we were still his enemies. Arrow back Romans 5.10. This love then exhibited to the maximum in Jesus is manifested in his followers only by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Son, who is sent into our hearts, Galatians 4.6, crying out, Abba, Father, in a graced imitation of Abba. Insight two, this is extremely important for where we're going. This is a direction forward. Where it says in 1310, love is the filling up of the law or in verse 9, more importantly, every commandment is summed up in this word. The word for summed up is this word. Again, this is going to be important. Anna, this means kind of again, K e p h a l a i Oh o oh. Anakhala. Here's a word that is a key word in the scriptures. Anakepalayao. More important, more definitive for what God is in the process of doing in Christ than even the word apocatastasis. This is a more important, more definitive word for what God is doing. Ana It's used here in Romans 13:9 this everything is summed up the whole law is summed up in love for your neighbor this word recapitulated or summed up in 13:9 the only other place where it's used in all of Paul's epistles is Ephesians 1:10 Ephesians 1:10 where it refers to God's intent to sum up all things in the heavens and on earth in Christ in all of its times. In the fullness of times means all time, all humanity, all angelic beings, all creation summed up in Christ. That's God's intent. Ana kan Ana o Bringing everything under his headship. So the mystery of God's will in the opening verses of Ephesians is permanently permanently welded to the mystery that is mentioned at the very closing verses of Romans, arrow forward, Romans 16.25, which speaks of the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the apocalypse of a mystery. This mystery has to do with the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ and the universally salutary or saving impact of the cross, which I call instauration. So anakephaliosis a noun will prove to be a significant word in upcoming studies this is a kind of a prophetic direction even more significant than what we've studied in the past apokatastasis acts 321 so it's noteworthy here that the summing up of the whole law is love the summing up of the whole law is love for one's neighbor and that the summing up of all things is in Christ in Ephesians 1.10. The dimensions, therefore, of the love of Christ or the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord, Romans 8.39, are infinite dimensions in Ephesians 3.18 to 19. I'll have much more to say about this in a final application today. Insight three. It is notable that Paul carefully separates the notion of non resistance of human civil governmental authorities, and this is extremely important because this is going to occur in po- quite possibly in the next couple of decades. There will be some very important things about this. It is notable that Paul carefully separates. The notion of non-resistance of human, civil, governmental authorities in Romans thirteen one to 7. From the resistance that's commanded against invisible supra-human powers. Especially the cosmic power of the flesh, capital F-L-E-S-H, in Romans 1311 to14, so between Romans 131 to seven, non-resistance of human power, human governmental power, and Romans 13:11 to14, a commanded resistance against suprahuman powers, in between there is the policy, the robust policy of love. So between these two sections in Romans 13 eight to 10 is Romans thirteen eight to 10 rather, in which love is reemphasized as the main interior motivation of the saints. That includes us. Love that is only possible by the power of and as a fruit of the Holy Spirit. For the love required is not our own love but the unparalleled love of God. 13, 13, 11, therefore, and now this Paul says, it's kind of like he's introducing an advertisement, except Paul is telling the truth. I have a little skepticism in my mind in which I say all advertising means lying, but that's, this is the truth. And now this Paul says, knowing the time, That it is already the hour for you to rise up from sleep. For now our salvation. Please note that term. It's the culmination and consummation of our salvation. Which occurs at the universal appearance of Jesus. Whom every eye will see. To whom every knee will bow. And whom every tongue will acknowledge as Yahweh. In a universal pledge. Of worshipful allegiance. That's an expansion. That puts an arrow forward to Romans fourteen eleven in comparison with Philippians two nine to eleven. So knowing this at the time, knowing the time that is already the hour for you to rise up from sleep, for now our salvation is closer than when we first believed. Now the night, a metaphor for the evil Aeon or the evil age is almost over the day. A metaphor for the consummation of the messianic age with Christ's universal appearing. The day is near. So put off the works of darkness. And that the metaphor continues just as you put off your night clothes The new fashion today is to wear your pajamas everywhere because you're too lazy to change pajamas into regular clothes that you walk around in in daily life in exposing yourself to people. So, normally people put off their night clothes and put on clothes that are appropriate for the day. See, this is a great metaphor for our time. I didn't get as crude as to say that in my written So I'll save my crudity for you all. So now, put off the works of darkness just as you put off your night clothes and put on the armor of light. This means that we are to wake up, not just to live or seize the day as people say, but to do battle against invisible powers. Comparison with Ephesians six ten to 17 here. Verse 13, let us walk. That means live our lives in a way that is appropriate for daytime. What is appropriate for daytime is not sleepwalking. It is not being inattentive, unreasonable, irresponsible, and unloving not with excessive partying he says and drunkenness not in sexual promiscuity and debauchery these are all distortions this is i have as a bracketed comment distortions of our liberty these are distortions of our liberty from the flesh into a pseudo freedom under the control of the flesh which is really slavery to sin arrow back Romans 6:13 to 22 should be reconsidered not in quarrels or partisan strife. Partisan strife can be illustrated in a government, a human government where a stalemate is reached because of personal partisanship which affects negatively the whole population of the peoples. And this happens within a church, partisan factionalism, which we must guard against as anyone else. In fact, another warning will come about that in a moment, well, toward the end. Not in quarrels and in partisan strife. That's factionalism rooted in group bias. And to be honest, this is how a lot of denominations started. Factionalism rooted in group bias, grounded in the desire to have preeminence over others, to be lord over others. On the contrary, that is, instead of desiring to be lord over others, get the point here, instead of desiring to be lord over others, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on means submit to And enter into a graced imitation of the Lord Jesus Christ. The new eschatological person is Jesus Christ. The new person we put on is not some unnamed person. It's Jesus Christ himself. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh That's capital F-L-E-S-H. Not your lower nature. The flesh is actually a supra-human power, equivalent to sin, desiring control over your lives, hearts, minds, and spirits. Make no provision for the flesh. That is for its impulsive desires. Epithumia is lust here. A lot of fundamentalists like to take this and put it only in the category of sexual sensual lust when in fact the main lust that's being militated against here is the lust to have preeminence or dominance over other people showing yourself to be more righteous to be stronger to be better to be whatever it's all pride insight for therefore. The desires or lusts of the flesh here, again, all of these insights are not intended to do harm, but rather to help the clarity of the flow of the Pauline epistle. The desires or lusts, as they're called, of the flesh here refer to the expressions of, an in, of the impulsive desire of the flesh, which is actually a supra-human entity, otherwise known as the power of sin, capital S-I-N, under the reign of death with a capital D a supra human power that would affect the interiority of the saints and render them or to combat that means unable to fight in the agona or the arena of contention which is this arena of contention that we find ourselves in right now is a collision of two ages or eons. This hortatory passage, which means a passage of exhortation, encouragement, and sometimes reproof, has to do with living our lives in a manner that is appropriate to the age that has dawned already with Christ's resurrection and dazzling glorious enthronement, an age which is about to come to full daylight, confer with Proverbs 4.18 on this. It means to walk, to walk here has an ethical strength or force, to live our lives under the governing guidance of the Holy Spirit, whose mission is ongoing right now. Again, arrow back Romans eight four, arrow forward Romans fourteen, fifteen. According to it is to walk according to what is called the rule canon in Galatians five six and six fifteen and sixteen called faith working by love. This rule is the governing imperative of the Israel of God. I have yet to do an excursus on that subject, Galatians 6.16, which amounts again to a graced imitation of Jesus Christ, Israel's Messiah. Now note this, this is all still part of an insight. The forceful urgency of the apostles' appeal to the messianic community, including us, matches here in Romans 13, 11 to 14. It matches and even exceeds the apostolic urgency that he communicated in Romans 12, 1. I urge you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, etc. The urgency of Paul's persistent appeal... Is due to his acute awareness of three things. First, the prophetic or the proleptic messianic community is living in the collision of two ages or aeons. One is an evil aeon, Galatians 1 4. The other, an aeon or age, that has intervened in order to supersede the present evil age. This intervention is through the invasion of the triune God into history in the form of two divine expeditions. Theologically, they're called divine missions. We'll be handling that topic theologically down the road. Owing to this fact, then, the invisible powers that are to be displaced and replaced by the grace-filled reign of God through Jesus Christ are vehemently resistant. These forces to be displaced and replaced are vehemently resistant. Secondly, Paul knew because of this, those who are awake, call it woke if you want, to the time in which we are living should also be armed with the spiritual interior weaponry Necessary for the inevitable spiritual warfare. Thirdly, Paul knew, and we should also know. It can be expected that the nearer the end of the evil aeon. And the full coming of the messianic age. The more escalated these conflicts are likely to become. There's a real urgency here and as a pastor, I must reflect this urgency to you and express it to you. It is easy to be AWOL in this conflict. It is easy to be a deserter and a defector from this conflict by opting out of the higher integration of human living that's only possible through the Holy Spirit in a policy of love. Opt out to your own peril. So, I must urge this. For those of you that think that the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ prohibits exhortation, you're dead wrong. It does not knock out the urgent need for exhortation, for reproof, for rebuke and correction. So, thirdly, then, it can be expected that the nearer the full coming of the age, the more escalated the conflicts are likely to become. All the more, then, is the need for love, which is the glue of unit cohesion, according to Colossians 3.14, among the members of the community that is joined to Christ. The community joined to Christ is engaged against principalities and powers, so it need not be in combat one against the other. Armed with group biases and hyper which is the desire of individuals or of groups to show themselves to be somehow better or more privileged or more filled with insight than others. We put on the Lord Jesus Christ. this is interpretive. We put on the Lord Jesus Christ in such a way that we represent him to one another and to the world in self-giving and self-forgetting love. By this principle, 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 P-A-L, principle, P-L-E, this passage flows seamlessly into Romans 14. See, all this is to help you understand what's coming up. And so here's an introduction to Romans 14. You're saying, this is a lot of stuff in between the actual passages. Exactly. It's called clarification, explication expansion Romans 14 then this is extremely important for you to understand that there are five groups in Rome that Paul mentions here Romans 14 deals with the real practical crisis among the saints in Rome while dining with one another that was a big deal meals as Jesus ate with publicans and sinners and caused a great ruckus because he was previewing the universal messianic banquet which people objected to while dining with one another in the so-called love feast Jude 12 Jude one twelve 12 talks about it these are occasions which probably involved the Lord's supper or the communion service conflicts ensued and showcased just about everything other than love the lack of love was rooted in group biases the first group is called the strong the strong they felt that their counterparts were weak in faith because they would not let go of certain dietary scruples and observances of certain holy days prescribed by the law of Moses so the strong basically called themselves the strong And named this other group the weak, mostly Jewish Christians who still, though they believed in Messiah and were part of the messianic eschatological community, had not let go of certain dietary scruples or the observance of certain, what we call today, holy days. So... The first group felt that their counterparts were weak in faith because they would not let go of these scruples. The weak, the second group, the weak, have also included other more ascetically minded Gentile Christians whose past traditions or habits constrained them. So the second group, also called, known as the weak, that is, tended to judge the strong. For their freedom, their freedom from certain scruples and strictures of the law. The strong understood correctly that they were free to eat any food they desired in their new Christian freedom. However, this group, this first group called the strong, went too far and flaunted that freedom in front of their weaker siblings. So no doubt this so-called strong group called themselves this by this moniker as they unwisely, 2 Corinthians ten twelve compared themselves with their weaker siblings. The strong group tended to despise their weaker siblings, maybe didn't even consider them siblings, and vice versa. On top of that, the strong were not woke, let's use that term again, to the potential damage that they were inflicting on a third group called the undecideds. You ever see all these new movies called The Expendables? They're pretty raucous action flicks with... Some of the old guys like Stallone and Jason Statham and Chuck Norris and Mel Gibson and all those guys. The undecideds. The undecideds were still without a firm conviction either way, whether or not to eat. Or to observe holy days. Esteeming them above other days. So if the strong were to exert a pull on an undecided brother or sister to eat before his or her conscience was ready for such a freedom, it could, in Paul's words, destroy her or him. Destroy him or her. Why does he use the word destroy? It's pretty strong. Yeah, it is. A brother for whom Christ died. Arrow forward Romans 14, 15. So this would indicate a policy entirely opposed to the love that Jesus enjoined upon his disciples and followers. A fourth group consisted of those who, though holding on to these dietary restrictions and observations of days, were not judgmental of the strong. Knowing that God had graciously received the Gentiles without any requirement on them from Moses' law, they knew this. Acts eleven eighteen, arrow back Romans two four. A fifth group. So we have the strong, the weak, the undecideds, the so-called weak who didn't judge the strong, and then we have the authentically strong who neither judged. Their fellow believers, Gentile types, nor despised their fellow Jewish believers. A fifth group, and Paul includes himself in this group in 15.1, as we'll see, were truly strong, authentically strong, in that they enjoyed the freedom which Christ freed them for, but they submitted their personal freedom to the policy of love. They limited their freedom by love, self-forgetting love, self-sacrificing love. And they would never dream of flaunting their freedom for fear of injury to a not-yet-persuaded brother or sister. Group five, therefore, did not look down on the so-called weak. This group was thoughtful and considerate of the undecided sister whose conscience would condemn her if she ate foods that were restricted or passed on a holy day before receiving the insight that would bring her to the freedom from such strictures. So as always, Paul's policy was rooted in Christ, who died not only for all, but for each. Romans fourteen fifteen becomes central to this arrow forward. So here's Romans 14 in that light. See, in that light, you can read this. In God's light, we see light. Be receiving the one who is, quote, weak in the faith, in your estimation, while not passing disapproving judgments on his or her opinions or choices. One person believes that he or she can eat anything, but the weak one eats only vegetables. For example, the one who eats that is has the freedom in their faith to eat everything, including what was formerly restricted by Moses law must not despise the one who does not eat because their faith prohibits eating certain foods, especially under certain conditions. We see in 1 Corinthians 8, for example, in a parallel passage, food offered to idols in the strip district of Corinth, for example. The one who does not eat, on the other hand, must not judge or censure the one who eats because God has received her or him. That means unconditionally because of Christ. Arrow forward 15.7. God has received the Gentiles without requiring anything of them by unconditional grace. He granted them repentance, according to Acts 11:18. So who are you, verse 4, to pass judgment? That means, in this case, a censorious or censure, disapproving judgment. Who are you to pass judgment? On a, now he uses a metaphor of the household of God, a house servant of another master. That means a house servant, your fellow believers are house servants house, in the household of God of another master. And it isn't you, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the point. Because it says, okay, who are you to pass judgment on a house servant of another master other than you? Jesus, to his or her own master—that's kurios or Lord. Good song pick, Vicky. He or she stands or falls to him, to him. I—I would insert here: Why don't people let other people fall to their master? If we fall, we fall to our Lord Jesus Christ, who picks us up. Too often today, people fall. And Christians jump all over them and kick them while they're down and don't even allow them to get back up and live in an unforgiveness that leaves them totally in the lurch, destroys them. Even as unforgiveness prohibits the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is brought on in a flood of forgiveness. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors Let your kingdom come. That's all comment. Now let's continue. Who are you to pass judgment, censure, on a house servant of another master other than yourselves? That is the Lord. To his or her own master, curious, Lord, he or she stands or falls. But stand, she will. Because the Lord, that's God, the Lord God, has the power to make him or her stand. Now, arrow forward, we will all stand, not fall before the judgment seat of God because the judgment will be conducted through the one who was judged for us on Mount Golgotha. Verse 5. For one person judges... Now, here's the word krino. Again, I have to insert this here. Krino, K-R-I-N-O in the Greek. This is used all over the place in Romans, but it has many nuances of meaning. It can mean to censure or judge disapprovingly, or it can also mean to determine in yourself self-determination and decide on a positive policy toward others. And so, again, for one person judges... Or distinguishes is the meaning here. It's many nuances of meaning here. One person judges one day from another. Or distinguishes. Someone else judges or considers all days alike. He who observes the day or any day like the Sabbath as special. Observes it to the Lord. They're doing this as a private thing before the Lord. They're doing it to the Lord. And the one who eats, this is a reference not only to a social repast, but the Eucharistic meal, eats to the Lord in honor of the Lord, giving thanks. forget diets if we were thankful for everything that passed from our hand to our mouth we'd all lose weight <laughs> never mind giving thanks Eucharist to God that means through Jesus Christ his Lord Romans 725 who saves us from this body subjected to death verse 7 for none of us lives to himself alone I think Bob Dylan said it well. You got to serve somebody. Nobody lives to himself alone. And no one dies to herself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. That's wonderful. We die to the Lord who embraces us. So whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. We belong to him. For this reason, Christ died and came to life, that he would be Lord of the dead and the living. So that means that those whom we call dead are with the Lord. Now you, Paul says, pointing the finger, why do you judge your brother or you? Why should you consider your sister of no account? For you see, we will all stand to be accounted for at the judgment seat of God. For as it is written, verse 11, as it is written, as I live, says the Lord, to me will bow every knee and every tongue will give praise to me. Not a forced confession here. Every tongue will give praise. Praise to me, says God, not a forced confession. Every tongue of every angelic and human being over all the course of history and time will give willingly, worshipfully praise to me, says the Lord. Insight five, Paul's interpretation here in verse 11 of Isaiah forty-five twenty-three. In which it is revealed that the acknowledgement of every tongue is not coerced but freely given. Freely uttered with praise. It is not accurate to interpret the universal acknowledgement of Yahweh as being Jesus. As forced on some of the human race and angels. It is accurate to say that the acknowledgement or confession to God that Jesus is Yahweh is made with praise. This depicts a universal worship of Yahweh in Jesus or Yahweh as Yeshua, Jesus. In agreement with Paul's previous ecstatic doxology in Romans 11:33 to 36, especially with regard to all things Returning to God. The order of universal eschatological events. Known as the telos or the end. In 1 Corinthians 15.24. Is this way. Three things. First. What happens? The son of God. Having reigned. Until all of his enemies. Including the last enemy. Death. Are under his feet. After that. After the Father will have abolished all oppressive authority under the Son's nail scarred feet, then the Son hands over the universally liberated kingdom, all redeemed creation, to the Father along with Himself. As Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 15 28, when the all things, that's universally, are made subject to him, then the Son himself will be subjected to the one, that is the Father, who subjected everything to him, so that God is then all in all. So the order is first, the Son is acknowledged as Yahweh in a universal chorus of praise. Second, the Son hands over the kingdom, that is all of the redeemed creation and himself to the Father. At this time, it is reasonable, given Romans fifteen nine through 11, which we won't hit yet today, that thirdly, the Son himself leads all of the redeemed creation in a song of joyful praise to his Father and ours, Abba, Father. He leads a universal chorus of praise, let everything that has breath praise him. He's the one who personally in Romans 15:9 leads this chorus of praise on the cusp of God coming to be all in all. So then verse 12, each one of us will give an account to God. Please note the interplay of every and each, each and every here, each and every. Therefore from now on, stop judging. The word crino is used here in a censorious or censorship way or disapproving way. Stop judging one another. And I'll say that for any reason whatsoever. Instead, judge. He uses the same word crino. Judge this. Put no obstacle of enticement or enticement in your brother's way, in your sister's way. Offer no stumbling blocks. In other words, don't judge in a censorious way. Instead, judge this, not to judge in a censorious way. Insight six, Paul plays along the nuance among the nuances of the versatile word crino, K-R-I-N-O accent there, crino or crino. He uses it in Romans two one, two three, two sixteen, two twenty seven, three four, three six, three seven, fourteen three. 4, 5, 10, 13, and then ahead in Romans fourteen twenty two. In other words, he uses this word crino 21 times in Romans in various nuances. This word holds the meaning on the one hand of censorious criticism and on the other hand of self-determination and decision. So Paul plays on both of these meanings in Romans fourteen thirteen by saying, instead of criticizing your siblings with the intent of censoring or cutting them off, Rather, determine in yourselves or judge to never put an obstacle in front of your sibling by exercising your freedom apart from love. In an epistle that was written not too long before Romans, Paul wrote this in Second Corinthians 5.14, the love of Christ controls me. That's a love infinite in all dimensions, incidentally. Because I have judged, Crino. I have judged or made a determination and a decision and a judgment that if one died for all in behalf of all, then all died. Now, I'm going to correct myself. Judge, he doesn't use 21 times. He uses the word one, O-N-E, one, 21 times in Romans. I didn't finish editing this until about 5 and 9 this morning. Paul had this thought throughout. He had thought it through. The love of Christ controls me because I have judged that if one died in behalf of all, then all died. He knew even by the traditional Christian message that Christ died the one in behalf of many or all. After reflection, serious reflection, Paul reached a conclusion that if this one, Jesus Christ, Romans 5.12, 5.15, 5.16, 17, 18, and 19, where one, O-N-E, is used 21 times. One died as a representative for all, then all died when he died. Judging this to be so, after serious deliberation, the unqualified, unconditional love of God for all human beings began to control Paul. The love of Christ must be the controlling reality among the saints at all times. You hear a lot about authenticity today. I'll tell you what an authentic human being is. An authentic human being is one who's controlled by the love of Christ. And uh, we'll be getting into personal authenticity a lot in the near future. Verse 14, I know and have been persuaded. Please notice he said that once before. I've been persuaded that nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 39. I have been persuaded by the Lord Jesus himself that nothing is unclean in itself. But if someone considers something to be unclean, then to him or her, it is unclean. If because of food, dietary choices, you are causing your brother pain, you are no longer walking according to love. Over mere food preferences, do not... Destroy. He uses the word destroy. Apolumi, your brother, your sister, for whom Messiah died. He died for each. Insight 7, short one. Paul uses the word destroy, the Greek word apolumi, here. Not because one believer is able to forever destroy another over such a small thing as food choices. Rather, he uses the word destroy to reveal just how serious it is to operate outside of love and how dear and precious each believer must be to us. Now, there's some sensitivity training, biblical type. Verse 16, therefore, do not let your good, that means your freedom from strictures related to diet, which you consider to be good, and it is good. Don't let your good be slandered. For if you see, if for you see, the kingdom of God does not consist of questions and preferences and restrictions regarding food and drink. On the contrary, it is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Anyone who serves the Messiah in this way, that is in the way of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit with a policy of love is pleasing to God and approved by people. So then, let us pursue the things that make for peace and mutual edification. To the strong, do not destroy the work of God. We are all his work. So here, the sibling is the work of God, God's temple in 1 Corinthians three, sixteen to 17. So to the strong, do not destroy the work of God, your brother or sister, on account of such a little thing as food. It is a notable thing not to eat meat or drink. Wine. If by these things you trip up your sister or brother, notice it again, it is a noble thing, not notable, a noble thing not to eat meat or drink wine. If by these things you trip up your sister or brother, keep the faith or the belief that you can do these things between yourself and God. I love that. Blessed is the person who does not incur self-condemnation for doing what he himself approves. But whatever is un- who, whoever is unconvinced that they are free to eat or drink is condemned by his own conscience if he eats, because his eating is not a result of a settled conviction that he may do so and everything that does not proceed from a settled conviction of faith that such a thing is approved by God is sin or complicity with the reign of sin and thus antagonistic to the law of the cross. Application to our situation. Application, tetelestai phalanx. We, who through no merit or achievement of our own have been placed on an overlook from which we are enabled to view the universal horizon of redemption may view ourselves to be the strong in an unwise comparison with our brothers and sisters who have not yet been granted this view. If we were to browbeat our fellow believers into seeing this view or flaunt our knowledge of this view to them, we would cease to walk in love. It's another thing. If they ask you, and if you have a friendly discussion, of course, our insight would be abused rather than employed by love to love our fellow Christian siblings. Listen carefully to this. It is better to keep this insight to yourself than to bring it up as a point of argument or as a means to peck a fight, as Braveheart would say. Instead, as Romans 15.1 says, we who are truly the strong, the fifth group, are obligated by love to bear patiently with the frailties of the so-called weak. So I say... This is me. A greater tragedy than failure to have the insight of a universal redemptive horizon. A greater tragedy is the failure to love. That's the power failure with which we should truly be concerned. So in closing, just to give us tracks to run on, 15, 1 through 6, I'll read briefly. We who are authentically the strong see, the seamlessly goes right into this, this. The group, the fifth group is used here, the strong. We who are authentically the strong, are obligated. He uses the word that he uses also in Romans 1, 14 to 15, 8, 12 and 13,8. by love, obligated by love. We owe a debt to love, to bear patiently with the frailties of the so-called weak. Each one should strive to accommodate to his or her neighbor. For his good to build her up. For the Messiah did not please himself. The Father says, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. The Son did not live to please himself. God the Father is pleased with his sons and daughters who do not please themselves incidentally that one little phrase is a marriage manual so then for the Messiah did not please himself instead as it is written the insults that were aimed at you have fallen on me Psalm 69 9 for everyone everything that was written before that's the scriptures or the writings of the prophets all together was written for our instruction to the end that through the endurance and through the encouragement imparted by the scriptures, we would have hope. He refers here to the sharing of one hope by all believers in Ephesians 4.4. 4. Now may God, who is the source of endurance and encouragement, grant you agreement with one another harmony among each other.